Well, good morning. Welcome to the Oasis. I'm Jeff Royce. I'm the pastor of this church, and can I just say, you may argue with me about this, but I think I'm the most blessed person on earth because I get to be your pastor, and I love that. Luke chapter 7 this morning, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, and while you're finding Luke chapter 7, a couple of things. Don't forget next Sunday after the service is our potluck. We're going to be turning this room around and putting tables and chairs out, and we're going to be having a family dinner, a family dinner with God's family right here at the Oasis right after our morning service. Also, don't forget about Wednesday night Bible study. We had another great group out Wednesday night, and this Wednesday we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 on how does the return of Christ affect our view of death as a Christian. We're going to be talking about that on Wednesday night. But this morning, we want to look at Luke chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at four different scenes from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in this chapter. We're going to see Jesus interacting with the Roman centurion in the first 10 verses. Then in verse 11 through 17, we're going to see Jesus at a funeral, if you will. Then in verses 18 through 35, Jesus is going to be talking about John the Baptist and what we can learn about serving Christ from that. And then finally in verses 36 through 50, we're going to see Jesus at the house of a Pharisee and an anointing taking place and what we can glean from that. In each of these scenes, we learn the blessing of being with Jesus and we learn the blessing of believing in Jesus in each of these scenes. And again, in each of these, we're going to learn more about what it is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to begin, first of all, in chapter 7 in the first 10 verses where we see Jesus interacting with this Roman centurion. And, and one of the things also that you find throughout this chapter, and it's so representative of the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus here is interacting with men, he's interacting with women, he's interacting with older folks, he's interacting with younger folks, he, he's interacting with Jews, he's interacting with Gentiles, such as it starts out here with a Roman centurion. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was getting ready to go on the move, if you will, in his ministry, and he was going to enter a city by the name of Capernaum. By the way, this will be one of the places that we visit on day four of our tour of Israel uh, next year if you're interested in going with us. So we'll actually be at the place where this took place back in Luke chapter 7. The Bible says a little bit of background here that this Roman centurion had a servant of his that was sick, so sick that he was near death. And this centurion heard about Jesus. And because he heard about Jesus, it meant that it was more than just physical hearing. It meant that he made room for Jesus in his life, in his heart and mind, and that he had come at some point to have faith and believe in who Jesus claimed to be. Because of that, the Bible tells us that he sent a delegation of Jewish folks to Jesus to ask him if he would come 
to his house and heal his servant. Jesus begins to go with them. When they approach Jesus, you know, they're trying to sort of butter up Jesus by saying, you know, this guy really is deserving of your help, Jesus. You know, he, he loves our nation. He's helped us build a synagogue. And, and it would really be good if, if you helped him. Uh, but as Jesus wasn't even there to the house of the centurion yet, the centurion actually sent another delegation to Jesus and says, Lord, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Instead, you just say the word and my servant must be healed. Jesus turned to the crowd and the Bible says that Jesus was amazed at the faith of this centurion and says to the crowd, I have not even found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And then the Bible tells us as that delegation was going back that they found the servant when they got back to the house totally whole and totally healed. Amen. What do we learn here about Jesus and about serving Jesus? Well, let me share three things very quickly. First of all, from the centurion himself. An effective servant of Jesus Christ is going to have a high view of Jesus. I mean, this centurion had so much faith that he basically says, Jesus, though up to this point, every miracle, every healing that you have done, you did while you were there, I have so much faith in who you are and in your power and your authority and your ability. I know that all you have to do is speak the word as the living son of God and that whatever uh, you say, it will be done. In fact, he says he must be healed because this disease, this illness, whatever my servant has, it is under your power and authority. If we're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to maintain and have a very exalted and high view of Jesus. And we need to have a growing faith and great faith in him and in who he is and in what he can do, not only to others and for others, but what he can do for us and in and through us as his servant. In fact, there's only two things that the Bible ever says that Jesus marveled at or was amazed at. Faith and the lack of faith. <laughs> the only two things that the Bible ever says Jesus was amazed at. Here he was amazed at this centurion, this Roman Gentile centurion's faith in him. There are other times where Jesus is totally marveling at a lack of faith in people. And by the way, this word amazed or marveled also means to admire. You want Jesus to admire you? Then just place your faith in him. 
trust, trust in him. Believe in who he claims to be. Don't put any limitations on who Jesus is and on what he can do because he's God and with God all things are possible. Amen. With Jesus, nothing is too hard for him. And that's exactly where this centurion was. It was like, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. Jesus today is looking for servants of his right now in this room who will leave here today and begin to live with that sort of mentality in their life and mind. That Jesus, all you have to do is say the word and it will be done. Because everything that I will come in contact with on this earth is under your power and authority. You're over it all, Lord. All you have to do is speak the word. The second thing we see in this passage, though, about an effective servant is their humble view of themselves. You note that whenever the, the delegation that the centurion sent, the Jewish delegation, comes and they're, they're trying to tell Jesus how, how worthy he is to have all this done. And yet the centurion himself sends another delegation and says, Lord, I know I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you, the Lord of glory, to come under my roof. But I do know this, I know that all you have to do is say the word and it must be done. You see, the centurion did not have a proudful view of who he was, even though he was a person of great position and authority and power in that day and age. He was a Roman centurion. He was part of the occupying forces of Israel. And he even tells you know, Jesus, through the delegation, I know what it's like to have the power to command. He says, when I tell this soldier to do something, he better do it. When I tell this person to carry out my orders, they better do it because they know I have the power and authority. And he's saying to Jesus, I know that you have a much greater power and authority than I do. In fact, I recognize that you have all power and authority. And I really don't have any power and authority if it wouldn't be granted to me and given to me or bestowed upon me by you, the Lord. That's why in this passage when he says, Lord, the word means basically master of the universe. You see, if we're going to have a proper view of Christ, then that means we have a proper view of ourselves in relationship to God. And we live our lives in humility before God. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to what? Walk humbly with your God. God is not only looking here this morning for those who will have a high view of Jesus Christ, but also will have a humble, proper view of themselves. And then finally, in this passage... An effective servant not only has a high view of Christ and a humble view of themselves, they have a caring view of others. They care about others. They have a consideration and a compassion for others, and we're going to see how that even links into the next passage. Because notice here, the Bible says this centurion had a servant, a slave. Well, a lot of times in that day, people who had servants and slaves couldn't care less about what happened to them and if they died. They'd just get somebody else to come in and 
take their place. They didn't really have any personal feelings or uh, emotions, you know, about their servants and slaves, but this centurion did. To him, his household servant was more than just a servant. It was somebody that he cared about and somebody that he wanted to see healed, not just for his own sake, but for the servant's sake as well. He cared about others. This is the whole point of Jesus telling us later on in the Gospel of Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who saw the person by the side of the road, and instead of passing by like the religious leaders did, they stopped, and they helped, and they took the expense on themselves, and they made sure that that person was well taken care of. Jesus is looking today not just for people who are self-absorbed, and who are living all about themselves, but people who have eyes to be able to see all around them at, the, at those that are hurting and maybe in need of encouragement or support or whatever, and that that's where effective service starts. It's all woven together here in these 10 verses where we see, even in these 10 verses, effective servants of Jesus Christ always have an exalted view of Christ, a humble view of themselves, and a caring view of others. Speaking of caring, let's move to the next scene, verses 11 through 17, where Jesus now is on the move again and goes from Capernaum to Nain. By the way, that's only a couple miles away, not too far at all. And the Bible tells us that as he and his delegation approaches the town, they see a, a sort of funeral procession coming out of the town towards them. We're informed some background information about what's going on here to, to give us an even a better grasp and gravity of the situation. We are told that the person on this bier, this stretcher that carries the dead because Jews didn't use coffins, when the Bible says they were carrying this young man who had died on a bier, B-I-E-R, it was simply sort of a, an extravagant stretcher that they would carry them to the to the place of burial. And the Bible tells us that this was a young man who was the only son of someone, some dear lady who was already a widow. So the Bible is painting us a picture of how bleak and desperate this woman's life has become because she's already lost her husband and now she's lost her only son. And in that culture and in that day and age, that would have put her in a very desperate situation, not to have some male family member in, in her inner circle to sort of look out for her and provide for her. She is following the beer that her dear son is lying on, and then the Bible tells us there's a huge delegation of people from the town who are also coming out, meaning that, you know, they understand what's going on here too, and they're trying to be supportive in their grief. And the Bible tells us that Jesus and his delegation sort of meet this funeral delegation coming out of Nain, and the Bible says that Jesus saw her. The word to see here 
means more than physical sight. It means that Jesus had an instant desire to become involved in this woman's life. I want us to stop here because, again, there's several things we learn about being with Jesus and believing in Jesus that should be a blessing to us. And one of them is that Jesus not only has all power and authority and that everything is under his power and authority and all he has to do is speak or say the word and it must be done, but that Jesus is someone who sees you and I. He wants to become involved with us and in our lives. He's not just one that's going to pass by and and not have, you know, any feeling. In fact, then the Bible goes on to say that after he saw her, it says he had compassion for her. The word compassion means to be deeply moved and affected by her situation. Something else we learn about the blessing of being with Jesus and believing in Jesus is we come to understand that here's a God who is deeply moved and affected by the things that go on in our lives, especially in this situation, things that are affected by the presence of sin in this world, things that God never intended. He never intended for death to be part of his plan, but death entered by sin, you see. And he's brokenhearted by the circumstances that sin and death have brought about, especially in this woman's life. Maybe you're here today, and I don't know what you're going through, but you know, based upon even the scriptures we've already looked at, that God sees you. (laughs) He sees you. And he has a desire to be involved in what you're going through. And he's a God of compassion. He's a God who feels our pain and what we're going through. He's a God who cares about us and what we care about. And he's a God who is moved and affected by the things that we feel and that we're dealing with in our life. But the story doesn't stop there. That would have been amazing just to know that God cares about us that much. But then the Bible says this. Jesus tells her, stop weeping. Literally, cease your grieving. And that would seem to be cruel at first, right? I mean, here's a dear woman who's already lost her husband and now is, you know, going to go and bury her only son. What do you mean, stop crying? Isn't that a normal reaction? But Jesus here is wanting her to understand hope is in your midst. And things are about to change real dramatically. See, that's what Jesus wants all of us to understand. And that's one of the blessings of being with Jesus and being around Jesus and believing in Jesus is knowing that wherever Jesus is, there's hope. Things are never hopeless when Jesus is in the room. Even at a funeral, which is why the Bible teaches us as Christians that we should grieve, 1 Thessalonians, but that we should always grieve as those who have hope, not as those who have no hope. Why? 
Because Jesus is alive and Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe that today? Hope is in this room today because Jesus is in this room. And Jesus wants to bring hope to the hopeless today, just as he brought hope to that woman who was walking out of her town with a dead son on that stretcher. And then Jesus does something amazing. He turns to the young lad on the stretcher and he says, young man, I say to you, get up. Did you get that? Jesus is speaking to a dead person. He's not just seeing dead people. He's speaking to a dead person as if the person can hear him and respond. And guess what? The Bible says the young man did because the young man arose and got up and began speaking. What does this teach us about our Jesus? That Jesus can bring life to that which is lifeless. That Jesus can speak life into something that is dead even. If, if Jesus could create this universe, as the Bible teaches us, out of nothing, if he brought everything that you and I can see and even beyond what we can see and grasp at this point in this vast universe, if he could bring this all into existence out of nothing, then when he's got something to work with, he can do even more. And he had a dead body there. It was nothing for him to speak life into that young man and bring him back to life. And Jesus wants us to understand in this situation, not only can I raise the physical dead, I can raise the emotional dead, and I can raise the spiritual dead, and I can come into your life or into your family's life or into any situation in your life, and it may seem dead to you, but I am the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can speak life into any and every situation Situation that you and I will ever face. Amen. There is no too far gone for Jesus. There is no, they're dead, there, there can't be anything more come out of that. No, Jesus is reminding us here of who he is and the blessing of being with him and believing in him and having faith in him. And, and the centurion did. But here's a situation where the woman wasn't expressing any kind of faith. She was simply overcome with, with grief and pain and sorrow, which we could totally understand. But Jesus had compassion on her. And Jesus was going to speak life into this young man and bring him back from the dead. And if Jesus could bring this young man back from the dead, he can bring anything or anyone back from the dead. And one day, because you and I are all going to die one day too, he's going to bring us and our bodies back from the dead too. That's the hope we live with. And the Bible says then that he gave him back to his mother. And the Bible says they were all filled with fear. This wasn't so much a negative fear. It was a reverence and awe that came over them. Like, oh my goodness. 
Who are we in the presence of? And then the Bible says, and then that reverence and awe gave way to praise and worship because they just began to worship the Lord, which should be a response. When we see God move and work and bring things back to life and breathe life into us or into situations, it should immediately have us fall on our knees and begin to praise and worship the Lord that alone can do that because no one else can do that. You and I can't do it. Only the Lord can do it. But he's more than willing to do it. He's more than willing to do it. Well, then we come to scene three. This interaction from a distance that Jesus has with John the Baptist. Because the Bible tells us then, beginning in verse 18, that John and his followers heard about these instances. They heard about the healing of the centurion's servant. And they heard about the raising of this young man from the dead. And John, at this point, please understand where John is. John is in prison getting ready to get his head lopped off. And so John sends a group of his followers to Jesus and said, Jesus, are you the one? (laughs) Basically, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? And the Bible says this delegation went to Jesus and said, Jesus, John has asked us to come to you and ask you, are you the one or should we look for another? What do we learn here about serving Jesus? Here's what we learn. There was no more solid servant and prophet for the Lord Jesus Christ than John the Baptist. I mean, he'd rock solid. He baptized the Lord. He testified for the Lord. He witnessed for the Lord. His witness was was strong. I mean, he was the guy that pointed people to Jesus and said, he must increase, I must decrease. He was the one who pointed people to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then why now is he sort of struggling and and dealing with such doubt in relationship to who Jesus is? Because he's human. And I don't care how strong of a Christian you and I are, there's going to be times in our life where we struggle to believe in Jesus, where our, where our humanness struggles with these doubts that, that in, in a sense, in one side, we know who God is and how faithful and all of that he's been. But on the other side, because of our circumstances, we're sort of We're sort of wavering, and John was there. And and the reason I want to point that out is because I don't want you to be so hard on yourself or be discouraged as a servant of the Lord when at times throughout your life you may have these doubts that creep in. John the Baptist had doubts, my friend. And you'll notice in this passage when you, you know, maybe take time to read it or study it later, that Jesus never says anything negative about John for struggling with these doubts at this point. He understands where John's at. And John probably sitting in his prison cell getting ready to get his head chopped off probably was thinking, I never really thought it was going to end this way. When I was born to be the forerunner of Christ and to go before and prepare the way, I 
I didn't really see my life ending this way, so young, getting, you know, basically cut down in the prime of my life. I, I didn't see it going this way, and so I'm sort of struggling to even maybe accept and embrace God's will for my life at this point. And so Jesus never says anything negative. Here's what Jesus says. You go back and tell John this, that you have seen and heard that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, and that the dead are raised. You go back and tell John that. What's Jesus doing? He's simply saying, you tell John, I have given proof and evidence throughout my life in ministry that I am the one. I am the Messiah. Amen. So what's Jesus doing? He's reassuring his servant. Because Jesus understands there's going to be times in our life, even in serving him, even as, you know, great a servant as sometimes, you know, maybe we think we are or maybe we really are, where we're still not going to struggle at times and need to have the reassurance of God in our life. Jesus understands that. And Jesus is more than willing to reassure us and to point us to the evidence and the proof. In fact, I... Loved what Nicole said this morning about, Lord, remind us of how faithful you've been. And let's remember how faithful and trustworthy and reliable and dependable you've been. That's sort of what we all need at times. Because that's what God's going to do. When we're struggling, he's going to point us back to all of his past faithfulness where he's been reliable, dependable, and, and he's going to point us back to all the evidence throughout our life, all the proof throughout our whole life of his hand being on us and with us and that he can be trusted and that he is who he said he is. That's what's going on here. And then Jesus says, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. After he shared with John's followers, the evidence or proof of his messiahship. What's Jesus saying? He's saying simply, blessed are those who are willing to publicly acknowledge me. And why does he say that in the context of John the Baptist? Because no one was a stronger public witness for Jesus Christ than John the Baptist. He was willing before people to confess Christ. And what does Jesus say later on? If you're willing to confess me before men, I'll be willing to confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Jesus is calling out his followers to be willing to publicly acknowledge. That's why we baptize publicly, because baptism is a way to say to others, not to God, but to others, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm not ashamed of it. And God is looking for servants who are not ashamed to be called his followers. Even though it's not popular, even though it might not be politically correct, even though we might not have the admiration of the masses and all of that, or the approval of, of other people, or it might not always please them, Jesus is looking for those who are willing to publicly acknowledge him. And then he goes on basically to honor John. He says, no one born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. But then he says something remarkable. He says, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. What's Jesus saying? 
He's saying to you and I, because that's one of the groups of people that Jesus is talking to right here. He's saying to us, do you realize the vast superiority of the privileges you have as a New Testament Christian compared to people like John the Baptist who lived in the Old Testament economy? He's saying that even if you think you are the least of the saints in the New Testament era, he said, do you realize you have greater spiritual privileges than John the Baptist ever had? Whoa. (laughs) Because to whom much is given, much more is required. You see, what do we have that John the Baptist didn't have? Permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. John the Baptist never had that. We have the church with gifted people and gifts coming right from God that we can enjoy and grow from. We have the Bible, the completed Word of God. John never had that. He had parts of it, but not all of it like we have. We've got so much more. No wonder Jesus said, greater things than I even did, you will do. Why? Because of all these great privileges and resources that that Jesus bestowed upon his church that people like John the Baptist never had. And yet John the Baptist was a great witness and servant of the Lord, and it reminds us how that you and I, because of all that we have, man, it should motivate and inspire us to be out there serving the Lord and giving our lives out to the Lord. Which leads me to the final scene. Verses 36 through 50, this Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house. And in those days, there were times where when something like this took place, it was more like an open house, okay, to where people from the community could all come if they wanted to. And so the Bible tells us this woman who was a sinner heard about Jesus being at the house of the Pharisee. Remember the verse from John 12, where my servant is, Or where I am, there my servant will be. She heard, oh, Jesus is going to be there? Guess what? That's where I want to be. That's one of the marks of being a servant of the Lord. Find out where Jesus is and you go and be with him. She says, I'm going because Jesus is there. And the Bible says that, and I'm giving a lot of, you know, backstory here in summary form, the Bible tells us that the Pharisee really didn't invite Jesus over to his house to somehow honor him. In fact, we learn later on, Jesus says, you never even gave me the common courtesies that most guests got in that day and age. You, you never anointed my head. You never washed my feet. You never gave me a kiss of greeting. But he's comparing the Pharisee and the way the Pharisee treated him because to the Pharisee, this Jesus was just some... just. Somebody like, we're all somebody. In other words, nothing special about Jesus. He's just like me, the Pharisee thinks. And we're sort of equals. And I'm just sort of going to try to feel him out tonight while he's in my house and, you know, just see who this guy really is. But the woman, the woman knew who Jesus was. That he wasn't just another human being that he was the Lord of glory who had forgiven her of all of her sin and had transformed and changed her life completely. And so this woman, the reason she wanted to go to the Pharisee's house that night was because she wanted to seize this opportunity to worship Jesus. She wanted to seize this opportunity 
to pour out her affection, admiration, appreciation, and adoration upon Jesus in spite of the ridicule that she was going to get and in spite of the personal sacrifice that it was to her. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that if nobody else, which I'm sure there were, that this Pharisee was ridiculing Jesus and ridiculing this woman because of her past. She's a sinner. And then he even goes on to say, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, he wouldn't allow this woman who was such a sinner to touch him. Can I tell you? I'm glad my Jesus allowed sinners to touch him. Amen. We can get pretty pharisaical at times. I'm glad Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. Jesus not only allowed this woman to touch him, he allowed her to weep upon him, to pour out this alabaster jar of perfumed oil and to, to anoint him and, and to just pour out her, her heart, her love, her tears, everything up upon Jesus, and he welcomed it. He welcomed it. Which, by the way, when I said she was willing to worship Jesus in spite of the ridicule and also the personal sacrifice. Why do I say personal sacrifice? This alabaster jar of perfumed oil was probably the most valuable thing this woman had from a material, physical standpoint. And yet she poured it all out on Jesus. In other words, to her, nothing was too good for my Jesus. Because Jesus has forgiven me of all my sin. And it might have been a great life of sin. We, you know, she was certainly well known as a well-known sinner in that, in that region. Jesus forgave her of all of her sin. And she simply was overwhelmed by his love for her and, and his compassion upon her and his forgiveness of her, and, and she just didn't know anything else to do except just simply seize the opportunity and say, Jesus, I just want to adore you and admire you and appreciate you and, and shower my affection upon you for who you are and, and what you've done to me and, and how you've changed my life and how you've made such a difference in my life. And of course, others there are, you know, looking down their nose at, her and Jesus during this whole thing. So Jesus sort of turns the tables on the Pharisee and says, well, let me ask you a question, Pharisee. If someone owed a creditor 500 silver coins or 50 silver coins and both of them were forgiven of their debt by the creditor, which one would appreciate and love the creditor more? And the Pharisee just had to think for a few seconds as well, I suppose the one that owed more. And Jesus said, brilliant. So that means the one who really understands and appreciates the gravity of the sin that they've been forgiven by God and they understand their own sinfulness, they really appreciate their salvation and the forgiveness that they've been given. But for people that think they're a pretty good person and they really don't have a lot of sin to be forgiven and they don't understand their own human depravity, then they're not going to really appreciate much of what God offers them. 
And that's why Jesus says, this woman is doing exactly what she should be doing. She's loving me much because she understands what I have done for her. The way you're treating me, you have no idea not only who I am, you have no idea about the depth of your own sinfulness. Servants of the Lord, like this woman, will always seize the opportunities when they are given to worship the Lord. To shower upon him our affection, adoration, admiration, and appreciation for who he is and what he's done for us. Because we have come to understand in being with Jesus and believing in Jesus who we really are at our core and who he really is and how much he's done for us. But I don't want to end there. I want to end this morning on a little bit of a sobering note, but something for us to think about. If you go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 30, I believe, it says that the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, rejected God's purposes for themselves. That's huge. Do you realize what that's saying? It's saying, first of all, God has a purpose for every person. Even here today, God has a purpose for us and that we as human beings can do terrible damage to our own soul by rejecting God's purpose for us throughout our life. That when God offers us opportunity to follow him and serve him, we say, nope, got something better to do. That was the religious leaders of Israel. Lord, we've got something better than to follow you and serve you. But we have also seen in this passage today, in Luke chapter 7, that for those that are willing to be with Jesus and believe with Jesus, what a blessing it is. What a blessing. We get to see healings, and, and, and we get to see, in a sense, Dead things raised to life and we get to see the Lord's compassion and, and his care. We get to see his peace bestowed and his forgiveness and we get to see lives changed, including our own. And We get to see hope in the midst of hopelessness and we get to see all these wonderful things if we do not scorn and despise the Lord's purpose for our lives. So each of us here this morning, there's only one of two ways this goes, because every one of us here this morning is being offered right now something from the Lord, an opportunity from the Lord. That every last one of us, God has a purpose for our lives right now in this season. And so because of that, there's only two choices. You and I can either embrace God's purpose for our lives right now and say, Lord, that's what I want. I want what you want for me. Or we, like the religious leaders say, nope, I got my own thing going. I want to do my own thing. And we reject God's purpose for our life. I want to plead with you this morning. Do not make the same mistake that the religious leaders of Israel did. 
in rejecting God's purpose for their life. Open up your heart, open up your life to God's purpose for your life right now and say, God, not my will, yours be done. And you will find great blessing come your way in your life and putting yourself in a place where you are being with Jesus and where you are believing in Jesus. Could you stand? Father God, would you take our worship today of you and our time in your word, God, and use it to enhance our life. Use it, use it God, to raise us to a new height and a new level with you. May we aspire to have the faith of the centurion. May we aspire to be faithful like John the Baptist and realize, Lord, that even as a faithful servant, sometimes we're going to struggle. Maybe today, God, we just need to be reassured. And God, help us to aspire to be like this woman from the town who wanted to seize every opportunity she could to worship you, God, to show you her personal affection, admiration, adoration, and appreciation for what you have done for her. God, may all of us here today seize that opportunity that we have right now to worship you to lay down our lives and say, God, I don't want to reject your purpose for me right now. I want to embrace it. Give it to me, Lord. Whatever you have, I accept it, God. I accept. Because there's no greater blessing in life than following and serving the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen.